announcement again today. Um, just to remind you, if you came in a little late, one is Michael Hudson's funeral. Michael went to be with the Lord earlier this week. His funeral will be later this week. Visitations on Friday night, and then uh, the funeral will be on Saturday, both up in Bernie. So uh, the information is there. You'll see on the screen. Uh, we weren't able to get into the bulletin this week, and I uh, want to make sure so many of us know the Hudson family and have known Michael, and want to make sure you're aware of that as well. Um, so just take note of that. You know, over the last week and then this week, I've done a little bit of an excursus from Ephesians because of the background of the issue of slavery and uh, what we will deal with in Ephesians 6, uh, 5 through 9, as, uh, as KJ read out of Ephesians 5, 6, um, excuse me, Ephesians 6, 5 through 9 in that passage. And the reason for the excursus, the, the going in the Old Testament, is I want to set some context that brings into the New Testament as we talk about this dynamic of a master-slave relationship as it's, as it's called there in Ephesians chapter 6. But there's some points of emphasis that I, I felt are very important to us as the body of Christ that we understand as we go into Ephesians 6. One is just understanding that I want to talk about the context of what the Old Testament says about slavery. And by slavery, what I basically mean is a forced servitude or practice of one person owner owning another person, just as a, as a general idea. And I wanted to talk about how the Bible approaches this and then brings it in the New Testament. And we have to deal with some cultural realities uh, as we enter into the passage of Ephesians 6. And to do that, I want to again go into the Old Testament and into the New. Last week, I made the overarching argument at a basic level that slavery is not part of the created design. That fundamentally, slavery is not part of the way God designed the world to work. This was not the created design. Rather, that slavery is an act of sin, an outworking of sin that we see among us in our fallen world. We see this in a lot of areas within the world that works itself out into less than what we would call ideal ways. I could give examples of divorce, and that's not part of God's created design, yet we see it work its way out. So we have to deal with the reality of divorce. And, and slavery would be in that vein, that, that you see it as an outworking of a fallen world, and so that it has to be dealt with within the created order now, uh, the fallen created order that we live in. I made these basic three arguments from three biblical principles. One is that all humans are created in the image of God and are called to fulfill his purposes. And I took that from Genesis 1, 26 through 28. So we are all created in the image of God. Um, I would love to, to deviate a little bit more and spend a lot of time here. I will tell you, it's been interesting um, just reading articles about uh, how even in the founding of our nation, this was recognized by the forefathers. I'll give you an example. There was actually a paragraph in the original draft of the Declaration of Independence that called out and said that slavery basically was sin and should not be practiced. Most of us don't know that, but that was actually put in there. 
but our founding fathers due to compromise, and that's the right word, and we might argue today, uh, not only unfortunate, but uh, a compromise we would not want to see took that paragraph out of the draft as, as it went to the final version that was signed. But even our founders recognized that all men are created equal. And they even called out very specifically about slavery in the new world, as, as it were, in, in the colonies. But that all humans are created in God's image. And I think that's important for us to remember. That is foundational to us as biblical Christians, and, and as we are as a nation, we now understand very clearly that's true as well. Secondly, the humanity of all is the base of just treatment of all. Because we are all human, all are to be treated justly, and I think you'll see that carrying into today's sermon. I drew that from Job 31, 13 through 15, in which Job proclaims his righteousness before his friends, saying, hey, I treat even those who are servants to me justly as well. The third thing I, I note is those who engage in enslaving other people are specifically categorized as sinners. Uh, in the New Testament, they're labeled as enslavers, as you'll see there in 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 10. In Exodus, it actually calls for their execution. It's a death penalty a response to those who would kidnap and enslave others and those who would then take them and who have been kidnapped and to be enslaved, which is interesting because we see this actually occur, for example, in the life of Joseph. So do you realize the act of mercy that Joseph showed towards his own brothers and the way he responded to, to them? Um, now, of course, this would have been before the established Mosaic Covenant, but just to see that act of mercy, that one who is sold into slavery says, but I will not respond in kind. And uh, what we need to realize is that biblically what that tells us is that slavery is not part of the created design. It's actually part of the fallen world. I, I further made an Old Testament argument that the Old Testament does not advocate for slavery. Now, if you read the Old Testament, particularly as you go through the Mosaic Covenant, and you read the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy and the book of Exodus as well, when you read this, you will find passages in which slavery in some way, shape, or form is dealt with. Now, I say this in a negative and a positive way, arguing that the Old Testament does not advocate for slavery. Negatively, what I said was this, that slavery, excuse me, what we are, let me start over, I'm reading the wrong part here. The Old Testament does not advocate for slavery. Rather, the Old Testament Mosaic law deals with slavery as an accepted reality, not in an ideal state. This is just how the world is now, we have to deal with it. And the Old Testament begins to deal with that. What we are seeing, as I note, is it is a description of the fallen world, not a prescription of how the world should be should be organized. To state it positively, slavery laws under the Mosaic law were not, in, were, were, excuse me, were intended to protect, they were intended to protect, not take advantage of the servant from poverty and abuse. That is, the Mosaic law takes into account the existence of slavery in the ancient world and says that we've got to do it in such a way that it protects those who are vulnerable, who are the ones that can be taken advantage of and abused. And the Mosaic Law deals with that. As I noted, and I put slavery in quotes, it's probably better that we understand it due to our connotation, particularly with slavery in the more modern context, in the, in the founding and then um, future of our own nation up into the 1800s, that slavery is probably better to understand as servitude, more or less, in the Old Testament. 
And then under the Mosaic law, it was generally, and I, and I noted last week, passages where you could enter into it permanently, but generally to be temporary state of contracted indentured servitude. There's a reason why every seven years there's release. There's a, there's a reason in the 50th year you're given back and you, you are now freed from your, your debts. The, these were put into the Mosaic Covenant as a design to constrain that slavery didn't become a permanent state, either for the individual or even their own family, um, to protect them from that. Now, as you noted, I also then argued on the basis of Deuteronomy 15, 18, that, that those who ended up in poverty and had to sell themselves into slavery were to be released. That ultimately, this was a pattern that was followed, particularly those who, are of, who were Israelites. That they were to be released and not held for long term, which meant your contracted servitude period could be up to six years or it could be shorter. In fact, the Old Testament warns don't look at it and realize your brother is in need and say, well, I'm not going to get my maximum return, so I'm just going to not help them out right now. It was actually designed to help address the issue of poverty, not to make it into an issue of poverty or enslaving. Also, we saw in Jeremiah 34 that the reason the the southern nation of Israel, or Judah more specifically, that they went into slavery into Babylon very specifically because they did not honor this. I mean, God says, because you don't honor what you're supposed to do in the seventh year of Jubilee, you don't honor that, I'm going to send you into your own slavery for a time. And he sends them off into captivity to make a point to them that you were not supposed to practice it the way you were. You're being unfaithful, and therefore I'm going to bring about judgment upon you to point this out. And I think if you, you take that narrative flow of the Old Testament, what you realize is the Old Testament is not advocating for slavery. It's trying to do the opposite. It's actually trying to protect those who are in slavery in some sort of servitude that are particularly vulnerable. Now this morning, I actually want to take it a step further. And this is what I, I want us to see in the biblical pattern. I want to see further in the biblical pattern this, that we are to treat all justly and kindly. Notice the word all. By that I mean all people. That we are to treat all justly and kindly and to treat the people of God with even greater, or we may say special affection. We need to see these two things. Because this is going to bear upon the reading and understanding of Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. And what do you talk about in this master-slave relationship that Paul is trying to address in the New Testament? Well, Paul is bringing into that passage this weight of an argument from the Old Testament of a pattern that had been established, and that is that all were to be treated justly and kindly. And hopefully I will advance that argument clearly enough we will see that. And what we will also see is that we are to treat the people of God with even greater or special affection. Sometimes we can, we can lose that, right? That Realize that certain classes of people do get greater privilege and affection. Now, we experience this all the time. Let's start with our families, right? I just want to point out, none of you have invited me to Christmas dinner. Absolutely none. I'm not even sure my own family invited me, but they did invite Dion, so I get to tag along, okay? But the reality is, why not? Now, I, I'm using it as an illustration. I realize, now, I'm, I'm probably going to get 30 invitations. I'm just going to say thank you, but I have now 
family obligations to, to make sure that we get to have dinner with our family. But So I'm just going to thank you in advance. But the reality is, is why not? Well, because you will invite those within your closest circle to partake of that together, right? That's, that's natural. That's not because you don't like me. It's not because you don't have an affection for me. That, it's not that. We just naturally say, hey, during this time period, there's an affinity for these that have a special relationship to me that I'm going to have fellowship with. Now, I realize for family, in this case, may very extended. There's some of us here. We don't have family members, so we draw others in. I mean, it's a, it's a great way to fellowship together. But I can extend this into even the way we look at our laws in our nation, right? I mean, let's start, for example, there, here's a privilege, right? Your tax rate is based on where you live. Now, some of you are going, why did you use the word privilege? Well, if the tax rates, tax rates were somewhere else, well, you got the better part of it, right? Now, if it's better somewhere else, you don't get that part. But the point being is, where you live dictates what your tax rate is, right? It also dictates the, the laws you fall under. The laws that we fall under in San Antonio or in Texas are different than if you go outside of our state. There are certain privileges and responsibilities, limits that we have because we live here. Or think of our nation, which is probably even the, the greater or more direct analogy to when you look at this in the nation of Israel, you enjoy privileges, I enjoy privilege, and one of them which we're exercising right now, and that is we live in a nation which allows us to freely gather and worship. That is not true in every nation, right? There, we have brothers and sisters in Christ that sit in physical geolocations that for them to worship and come together and worship is an act of risk-taking in a significant way, even to the point of death. Why? Because they are in a different locality that has a different set of rules for the people that live there. Right or wrong, that's how it is. We need to see it is not unusual among mankind to have different rules and patterns based on the group of people you belong to. Now, biblically, again, what I want to advance is that we are to treat everyone justly and kindly, but we are also going to see that the people of God are treated with a greater or special affection. That is not true of all. And, I, and that's basically where I want to end this morning on the sermon, is to see that because of how it carries into Ephesians 6, 5 through 9 as we go into that. So let me just start making the argument for the broadly, we need to be kind and just to all. Okay? In Exodus 22, 1, in Exodus 22, 1, it's written, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Okay? The idea of sojourner right, is someone who is, who is in your land and not native to it. They may not belong for various reasons, but they are not native to the land you live in. And the basic argument that's advanced is what? You will not wrong them or oppress them. Now, look at also in Leviticus 19, in Leviticus 19, it, it, in 33 and 34, it says, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall do him no wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, and there's that reason clause again, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. 
And then God says, I am the Lord your God. This is what I'm declaring to you. Notice how he then talks also in Deuteronomy chapter 10. So you can look there in Exodus chapter 21, Leviticus chapter 19, or Deuteronomy chapter 10. And I just did this in the canonical order. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, in verses 12 and 13, and I'll read 17 and 19, which you get the whole paragraph there of 12 through 22, says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, and then notice what he says, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Doesn't that sound like the great Shema? It should. Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today, for your good. And then I'm picking up in verse 17, it says, For the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, and my, the, great the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. Which is a way of saying our God is just. He cannot be influenced in any way to injustice. And then verse 18 states this more explicitly. He executes justice for who? The fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner. Giving him food and clothing. As a result, what is the nation of Israel supposed to do? Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. And here's the basic point that you see taken out of this. Those in a position of power, which it was the Israelite nation would have been, because of their special status in their land, must be careful to not take advantage of the vulnerable. There's this general principle that when you're in a position of power, you have to be careful not to take advantage of the vulnerable. Notice, when you, when you look back, the reasoning for this, just look at every one of them ended with that reason clause, but I'll just lose in Exodus. It says, love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You see the reasoning? Don't forget where you came out of. You were a sojourner too. What a powerful reminder. You love the sojourner because you are a sojourner. That's what he tells the nation. You better love those sojourners because you are one of them. In fact, lest we miss this point, so are we. In the book of Hebrews... It describes what happened up to the Abrahamic covenant. You know, it talks about Cain. It gets all the way to Abraham. And in Hebrews eleven thirteen, it says this. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. Notice that phrase. That's how it's describing those who led up the Abrahamic covenant. They died without seeing the promise fulfilled. 
Now, what's interesting is it traces back all the way, if you really think about it, to the Genesis 3.15 promise that there was one that would come, a Messiah, that would come to crush the head of the serpent. But in Abraham's case, even to see the one that would come, as Paul would argue later, he is the offspring that would bless the whole world, and, and that wasn't seen. But notice the language in Hebrews 11, they were strangers and exiles on earth. That exact language of stranger, of sojourn, of being in exile is then what Peter uses to describe the Christians in Asia Minor. In 1 Peter 2.11, as Peter writes to them, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. See, part of the Christian identity is the realization this is not where we belong. We are sojourners and exiles, and part of that identity should then give us a deep appreciation for others who are sojourners and exiles as well. You realize that when we look at others, we must realize they don't know Christ. They are like a sojourner and exile in slavery to something that once we were enslaved to, that is sin. There's this powerful reminder of empathy that we, we look at them, we realize, I was like that once too, and I still am, but in a different way. And, and you see that from the Old Testament, right? You see it carried from the Old Testament to the New. You were sojourners and exiles. That's what you were in Egypt when he talks to Israelite. So treat them kindly and justly. We are sojourners and exiles, so our hearts should be compassionate towards those who do not know Christ. It should compel us that we want to treat them kindly and justly, because our very testimony should be, this is what it looks like to serve our God. We, we act as our God does. But, but isn't it interesting that it's an outworking of something. Going back to Leviticus 19, we're, we're to treat people justly and kindly, but notice the other thing that he describes those sojourners and exiles as, the strangers. In Exodus 19, 33 and 34, it's written, when, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall do him no wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall... Love him as yourself. Ring a bell? Jesus told us a story, didn't he? He tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And he asks, who is the true neighbor? Isn't it interesting that even in the Old Testament, it is seen that the true neighbor, the neighbor is not just the one who is among you as a people, right? The Israelites had to go, it's not just the Israelite. It is the Samaritan. It is the one that we would even hate. Because they stand against us and don't even worship our God. And, and in the Old Testament, it says, even strangers love them as, a, as one that you love as yourself. There's a reason why our Lord says, 
What are the two greatest commandments? Love the Lord your God with your heart, all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And second to it is what? Love your neighbor as yourself. You see, what is, we need to realize that is not new to the New Testament. This is a biblical pattern that God had established in the nation of Israel and had been talking about this is the way we are to carry ourselves. We are to act justly and kindly to all because part of our identity is that we are strangers and sojourners too. We would want to be treated justly and kindly, wouldn't we? You know, in the book of Hebrews chapter 13, it talks about let brotherly love continue among you. Do not neglect to show hospitality. And in some versions, like the ESV, it says to show hospitality to strangers. The reason for that is the word is actually a combination of two words. Philos, which we get brother from, or philia, which is the verb meaning brotherly love. And the other word is xenos, which you may vaguely hear that because we have a word in English. We call it xenophobia, the fear of what? The stranger. But in Hebrews, it says, no, you, you love the xenos. That is the word that's used to represent hospitality, the love of the stranger. And that's why when you look in versions like the ESV, it says, to show hospitality to strangers. And of course it says, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. In other words, I don't know who these people were. And it turns out that you treat them generously and kindly, justly. Because in Hebrews it says, you actually may be entertaining angels and you may not even be aware of it. Be hospitable to the outsider, to the stranger. Now, hopefully that lays enough of a foundation that what you see, and you'll see some more if you read the Old Testament, that really what the Mosaic Covenant is trying to establish among the people is this being acting in a just and kind ways, even to the outsider, even to the one that's not part of the people of Israel, right? It's not treat them as such an outsider that you, you in no way, shape, or form are, not, are kind and just to them. Just ignore them. Oh, they're just an outsider. Okay. No. The Mosaic Covenant actually says you're going to have these people come in the land. There, there's a lot of writing in the Old Testament. What do you do about these people that come in? We see example after example in the Old Testament about the outsider who's welcome in in the people of Israel. Rahab, her family. Ruth, she's a Moabitess, Right? And also part of the lineage of our Lord. And so you see these examples of these outsiders that come in that are welcome into the people in no small part because they're willing, in many cases, to join the people in the worship of God. Now there's a delineation, and this is where there's a lot of technical language that occurs in the Old Testament, and I'm going to summarize it a little bit for you uh, to try to give you an idea of some words and how you will see some different treatment in the Old Testament and that pattern carries into the new. And it's significant because it tells us something special about us as Christians and how we relate to one another. In the Old Testament, you're going to read words like, depending on your translation, strangers, aliens, sojourners, foreigners. You're going to read through. And, and those words actually have some underlying Hebrew words behind them. 
Now, the translators are not always consistent. Let me tell you that. It's not like I can tell you, well, if you always see stranger, it's this word, or if it's always foreigner, you see this word. So it gets complicated a little bit. But this is where it may be helpful to, to realize the differentiation that goes on even in the nation of Israel that will help us, I think, in understanding the New Testament and how there is a special affection for those who are in Christ. Now remember, the, the balancing truth here is, here is not, not this just uh, unfounded hatred of the other. You're supposed to act justly and kindly, but you're going to now hear some caution that actually goes on in the nation of Israel. The word typically translated, and I have to use the word typically because it's not every case, but typically you'll hear the word alien. Sometimes it gets the word sojourner, but alien. It uses that word alien in many translations to represent a Hebrew word of ger or ger. You can pronounce it either way, depending on your, your emphasis on the syllable. But ger or gerim, which is the plural form, is actually usually, we, we will see it alien, it usually is representing a proselyte to Judaism. In fact, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament done before the time of Christ, uses the Greek word proselytos. You probably hear the word proselyte, right? It's one who is seeking to become a Jew, to embrace Judaism. And so typically that's what you're hearing about alien. Our kind of closest analogy in a geopolitical is someone who would come into our nation and wish to become a naturalized citizen. Right? If I'm talking about this on a, on a political level, it would be someone who comes in the nation and says, you know what, I want to become one of you, so I will become a naturalized citizen. Right? Those of us born in the U.S., we get citizenship because of the place of our birth. Right? Some among us have come into our nation, have chosen and said, you know what, I want to become a member of your nation, and I will ad adopt the commitments of your nation, and so in doing so, I will become one of you. I'll become a naturalized citizen. In Numbers 9.14, it actually talks a bit about this. You, you get a feel for it. It says, if a stranger, interesting, you know, there is the word stranger, that's the word gare, sojourns among you and would keep the Passover to the Lord according to the statue of the Passover and according to its rules, so shall he do. You hear the proselyte language? This is a stranger, an outsider that says, I want to keep the Passover just like the Jews do. You shall have one statue both for the sojourner and for the native. That is, it's describing one who has decided, I want to become a Jew. We, we actually, you know, as we talk about it in the New Testament, there are a, lot, a lot of times they're called God-fearers. They're those who realize, I need to fear the God of the Jews. And so they, they get treated in a certain way. Uh, these are what we might understand, again, as naturalized citizens. They've decided they want to convert to follow Yahweh. Now notice what, what that means. An honest conversion means they don't, they don't represent a danger that they want to lead the people of Israel away from Yahweh. They want to embrace Yahweh. So a lot of times you will see this word trying to represent somebody who's willing to commit to Yahweh as the nation of Israel committed to Yahweh. And they are embraced in. Again, this is why you have the Rahabs. This is why you have the Rus of the world. Because they're willing to come in and embrace Yahweh as their God. Now, there's two other words that you will see translated to Old Testament. Another one that's used often 
is the, the Hebrew word nakri, uh, or the plural form is uh, nakrim, it typically is translated foreigner, right? Now, we experience this. If you travel, like, if you travel to another country, right, you are now a foreigner. I don't have citizenship. I don't belong to that country, right? So when I go in, my, my rights in that country are restricted because I don't have an allegiance to that country. And so it uses this word foreigner sometimes to, to translate this word nakri. And, and that may just be helpful. You're like, I'm, I'm thinking through the Old Testament, these categories. I've got the category of alien, who's one who wants to be aligned and, and has allegiance to Yahweh. Then you get this other category of a foreigner. And that is one who may not have interest in Yahweh. Now, bear in mind, it doesn't mean they're naturally antagonistic. It doesn't just mean they hate Yahweh. It just may mean they're agnostic towards Yahweh, whatever. I'm fine with you. I'm going to come to your country on your rules. We do this. Like, I've been to multiple foreign countries. I don't go in and try to cause a ruckus, right? I just want to go in and get my job done, and then I want to, I want to leave. Like when we go to, uh, for example, Honduras on mission trips, I'm not looking to cause problems. I want to be a minister of Christ there and bring the gospel into the country and do that which is helpful and good for the people, right? So just realize foreigner doesn't mean bad. It just means they're not one who is willing to ally with Yahweh. In Deuteronomy 14.21, it says, you shall not eat anything that has died naturally. So he's telling the Israelites in Deuteronomy 14.21, you find a dead animal on the side of the road, don't eat it. Now, I realize most of you just thought, never been tempted, right? Um, I was a collector of odd things growing up. I actually have a can of armadillo meat. I really do. I've never opened it. As far as I know, it's probably empty, and it's just rocks, because I'm not going to open that thing. But anyway, right, you don't have to tell me, don't eat the armadillo meat. But this is saying anything you find dead, right? So, you, you know, for the you deer hunters, you can't go claim the carcass of the deer that you found. Oh, you know, that, no, it's, it's died naturally. You leave it alone. That's what he tells the nature. But notice how he talks about, then he goes forward. You may give it to the sojourner who is with you in your towns, that he may eat of it, and you may sell it to the foreigner for you are people hold to the lord your god isn't it interesting he doesn't apply the rule of not eating an animal that's died naturally and says well they have to follow all the rules of the israelite he actually says as a foreigner you can sell it to them if they're okay with it they can have it and they're not condemned for it they're just here you go you you, you don't have a problem eating this so you can eat it now, look, part of the application here is not go find dead armadillos and sell them to people. That's not the application here. The application here is to see, or observation really here is to see, God would treat foreigners differently than he treated his own people. Do you see that? He had, he had more stringent regulations for his own people. There's a higher standard, as it were, that they had to live by. It was different than those around them. I mean, I could go through and give other examples. For example, in Deuteronomy 23, 19, and 20, you could not charge interest to your Israelite brother. It actually says if they're poor and you need to lend them, you can't lend to them with interest. Now, you can ask, you can ask them to pay you back, but you were not allowed to lend them the interest. But a foreigner, you could. You could actually lend them and expect that they're going to have to pay that back. Even a year of Jubilee stuff goes on, you could expect that. Now, Why? Well, part of it probably had to do with foreigners were coming in as foreign investors. They weren't part of the people of God. And I, just 
What you have to see is that the people of God and those who are not part of the people of God are treated differently. It's not just versus unjust, right? It's not justice versus uh, injustice. It's just literally different. And part of that's important because if we don't realize that scripturally, it will be hard for us to understand the Bible. God treats his people differently. He does. And he shows us a special affection that he doesn't show to those who are not his people. That does not make our God unjust. My father-in-law has a great saying, fairness is the enemy of justice. If you try to treat everybody the same and think what justice means is everybody's treated the exact same way, you're going to find out that it doesn't result in justice. That's fairness. I'm just going to try to, try to treat you all the same way, right? Think about it. God didn't design us the same way. He didn't. And if the way I determine worth is whether or not you can do calculus, right? Anybody got any worries in here? I do. I don't even remember it anymore, right? Like, that took it so long ago. I, I know there's this thing, you know, I can take a derivative integral, but man, that's about it. You know, you're, some of you are going, that's enough for me. But the point being is, he created us differently. But if, if part of the judgment of our worth is whether or not we can draw art, I'll tell you right now, I'm out, right? I just, I don't have artistic skills, or at least not drawing, you know. I know some among us have some very great skills of that. We love it. But God imparts to us, and we even see this New Testament, we get gifts differently, don't we? You don't, we don't all get the same gifts. We just don't. That's both physical and spiritual. So there's a differentiation, and we should never accuse God of injustice. Injustice doesn't mean everybody's treated identically exactly the same way. That's not what injustice is. Injustice is when we, become, when we don't treat it as God is intended for people to be treated right? We define justice by the way our God shows us what it looks like. And so when we read the Bible, we have to realize that there is a differentiation between the way God treats his people and the way he treats people that are not his people. Now there's another class, another word, it's, it's very infrequently used. Often it gets translated immigrant because they just had to find a word that was trying to represent a foreigner. And typically these foreigners are those that are seeing. um, and this is, this is one of those ones you have to be careful. They, it, it's the word to shove, and it, it can kind of lean towards, they're the ones who are more uh, adversarial towards the people of God. It only occurs five times in the Old Testament, so it's not, it's not a lot. Uh, it occurs three times in Leviticus 25, and you find that they get treated very differently in Leviticus 25 than the people of God. They're people that it actually says in Leviticus 25 that God's people were allowed the word it uses is, is buy them as slaves. The word may be better acquire, meaning no, don't think of like an open slave market like we would have thought of in, in the 15 to 1800s here in the New World that was just pure injustice and slaving, right? Enslaving, kidnapping, and selling, we know, is a capital punishment under Mosaic law. This seems to be that were those who were willing to come into the land but they were adversarial, so it was like, well, if they're going to sell themselves into slavery to you, i.e., more like indentured servitude, you're allowed to do that with them. But there was caution around it because they were more adversarial towards the people of God. 
right? Now, we do this even in practice, now, not buying slavery, but we do this in practice and being cautious. If you know someone who represents a real threat to your children or grandchildren, do you just openly welcome them into your home? You know why? To put it gently, it's foolish. To put it bluntly, it's stupid, right? You don't want your children to be hurt, right? And so God has the same concern for his people. And if we forget that, we can accuse God of injustice because what he's trying to do is protect his people. And if we forget part of protecting his people is that he has protected them from those who would threaten them to draw them away from Yahweh, we're going to think God's an unjust God. But that's not what he's doing. He's protecting those he loves, his people. And remember, he's not at the same time saying, then be unjust, don't care about them, crush them. I remember, you remember, Jonah hated God for his justice and kindness towards Nineveh, right? What happens when God acts justly and kindly to people you hate? Well, you'll go get on a boat and get swallowed by a large fish. Evidently, that's Jonah's approach, right? Our God is just and kind. He actually gives them opportunity repent, Nineveh. And Jonah's like, I'm not taking that message. I know God's, God's bold enough to actually forgive him, right? You, you hear our God models the justice and kindness towards the outsider, including us. Because there's probably not a person in here that would fall under the class of being an Israelite. We are all the goyim. We are the nations. We are the outside people. But we get in. What we need to realize is this, is the Mosaic law treats those who follow Yahweh more generously than those who don't. And that's okay. That pattern follows in the New Testament. This pattern, actually, of God favoring his people continues in the New Testament. And I'll give you probably a verse that you probably quote, or at least it comes to mind if you don't know where it comes from, when you're facing hard and terrible circumstances. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For who? Those who love God. For those who are called according to what? His purpose. Okay, you realize, I mean, just bluntly speaking, if you don't embrace Christ, what is the ultimate outworking of your life? What comes at the end? condemnation condemnation punishment judgment but if you embrace christ what comes at the end to be absent from the body to be present with the lord it is glorious presence of god see the new testament even paul builds on this this basic underlying biblical pattern that those who embrace christ those who follow god get a special affection, a special treatment than those who don't. And that is not God being unjust. That is God being just and kind. Generous to those of us who do not deserve it. So absolutely our attitude should be towards those who are outside of us. Kindness and justice. Why? Go back. What's the pattern? In the Mosaic Covenant, treat the sojourner, the exile, the foreigner, kindly and justly. Why? Because you, because I was a sojourner in exile just like them. They may be a sinner who does not know Christ. Guess what I was? 
I was a sinner who did not know Christ. And God embraces me. This is why Paul can write in Galatians 3, in verse 27 through 29, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And then notice what he says. Those who are in Christ, there's, there's no distinction. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You realize your ethnicity, the status of whether you're free or a slave, the status of your male or female, none of those matter of coming into the people of God. For you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you are Christ and you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. What I hope we will see, and we're going we're gonna to carry this into to next week, is that God does treat those who are his with a greater affection and specialness. That does not mean he's unjust. It does not mean he is not kind to those who are not his. But we enjoy a special privilege, and because of it, as we'll see next week, it demands greater things of us and how we relate to one another. We need to remember that we are to treat all justly and kindly and to treat the people of God with an even greater or special affection. This is what we will see next week as we visit and, and see Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. This is what's at work among the people of God. Father, I thank you to show us the biblical pattern, the pattern that we are to treat all justly and kindly, because that is who you are as our God, and that is what you command us as a people. You did this of your people in the Old Testament of Israel, that they were to treat those who were foreigners and outsiders as those who were their neighbors. And that, Father, our Lord affirms this in the New Testament by telling us again, we are to treat those who are outside of us, not the people of God, as our neighbors. God, help us. Let us not be a people who cast out those who are not among us because they are different. But, Father, that we would treat them justly and kindly so that they might see Christ and be drawn to him. And, Father, help us to also see you are the God who has a special affection for his people. And because of that, we should have a special affection for one another. To live to the high calling, to love you with our, all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love our neighbors ourselves. And Father, as, as the writer of Hebrews writes, to have that brotherly affection for one another that's in the body of Christ. Father, use us as a people to show the kindness and justice of our God and to show the deep love and affection for one another so that others would see Christ exalted, lifted up by it, and they would be drawn to him. So that they might say, to, like we say with the psalmist, that it is not to us, not to us, but to your name that we give glory because of your love and faithfulness. God, glorify yourself among us. It's in Jesus' name we pray and by the Holy Spirit. Amen.